Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Between December 16, 1944 to January 25, 1945, the Battle of the Bulge was the last major German offensive campaign of the Western Front. It was launched through the densely forested Ardan region of Wallonia in eastern Belgium, northeast France, and Luxembourg toward the end of World War II. The furthest west the offensive reached was in the village of Foy, Notre Dame, southeast of Denat, being stopped by the British 21st Army Group on December 24, 1944. The German offensive was intended to stop the Allied use of the Belgian port of Antwerp and split the Allied lines, allowing the Germans to encircle and destroy four Allied armies and force the Western Allies to negotiate a peace treaty in the Axis powers' favor. Once that was accomplished, the German dictator Adolf Hitler believed he could fully concentrate on the Soviets on the Eastern Front. The surprise attack caught the Allied forces completely off guard. American forces bore the brunt of the attack and incurred the highest casualties of any operation during the war. The battle also severely depleted Germany's armed forces, and they were largely unable to replace them. The German personnel, and later the Luftwaffe aircraft, also sustained heavy losses. The Battle of the Bulge was coined by contemporary press to describe the bulge in the German front lines on wartime news maps, and it became the most widely used name for the battle. The offensive was planned by the German forces with utmost security, with minimal radio traffic and movement of troops and equipment under the cover of darkness. Intercepted German communications indicating a substantial German offensive preparation were not acted upon by the Allies. The Germans achieved total surprise on the morning of December 16, 1944 due to the combination of Allied overconfidence, preoccupation with Allied offensive plans, and poor aerial reconnaissance. The Germans attacked a weakly defended section of the Allied lines, taking advantage of heavy overcast weather conditions that grounded the Allies' overwhelmingly superior air forces. Fierce resistance on the northern shoulder of the offensive, around Ellsbourne Ridge and in the south, around Bastogne, blocked German access to key roads that they counted on for success. Columns of armor and infantry that were supposed to advance along a parallel route found themselves all on the same roads. This, and the terrain that favored the defenders, threw the German advance behind schedule and allowed the Allies to reinforce their thinly placed troops. Improved weather conditions permitted air attacks on German forces and supply lines, which sealed the failure of the offensive. In the wake of the defeat, many experienced German units were left severely depleted of men and equipment as survivors retreated to the defenses of the Siegfried Line. The Germans' initial attack involved 410,000 men just over 1,400 tanks, tank destroyers, and assault guns, 2,600 artillery pieces, 1,600 anti-tank guns, and over 1,000 combat aircrafts, as well as a large number of other armored fighting vehicles. These were reinforced a couple of weeks later, bringing the offensive total strength to around 450,000 troops and 1,500 tanks and assault guns. Between 63,222 and 98,000 of these men were killed, missing, or wounded in action. For the Americans, out of a peak of 610,000 troops, 89,000 became casualties, out of which some 19,000 were killed. The Bulge was the largest and bloodiest single battle fought by the United States in World War II, and the second deadliest battle in American history. And now we join BBC reporter Robert Blair as he reports on the Ardan withdrawal 
on December 18, 1944. During the night, the town had been bombed a little, strafed a little, and a siren had wakened us to give warning of paratroop activities. In the morning, there was a rumor that German tanks were just over the hill. Armed patrols went out on the roads. Trees were felled as roadblocks, and thunderbolts and lightnings came low over the town and began wheeling and searching in the woods just east of us. Then the order that everyone hoped would never come came. We had to move out quickly. Somehow the news spread around the little Belgian border town and the people came out to see the leave taking. Some of the troops had been there for three months. Many had made friends. There was handshaking and many questions. How near were the Germans? Did we think they'd come to their town again? Was it true the German tanks were just over the hill? There were awkward silences. The GIs couldn't answer that question. A truck driver tying the tarpaulin over his loaded truck swore quietly and said, I never thought this would happen to us. Good morning. Here's the NBC News from around the world. This is James Stevenson reporting from the NBC Newsroom in New York. In a few moments, we'll call in NBC observers from overseas. But first, here are the late developments. Reports seeping through the news blackout on the Western Front indicate that furious fighting is in progress on the northern sector where the German counterattack has driven approximately 18 miles into Belgium. Allied planes are smashing at German armored columns. In the Balkans, the Red Army is only three miles from Kassa in eastern Slovakia, threatening the German defense from Poland down to Hungary. General MacArthur's troops are continuing their push up Mindoro Island and meeting with little ground resistance. At the same time, United States headquarters in the Pacific reveal that 742 Jap planes have been put out of action in the past week. B-29s based in China today smashed at airplane factories in Omura, key town in western Kyushu Island at the southern end of the Japanese homeland, while the Imperial headquarters claimed that two Allied warships and two transports were sunk off Mindoro. The Japanese claims were not confirmed by Allied headquarters. And now, a few words from your announcer. Every report that has come back from the battlefront stresses this fact. Soldiers want letters from home more than anything else. Are you writing regularly to your soldier, and are you making sure that your letters reach him surely and quickly? You can make sure you know by using V-Mail, the fast, sure, safe way of getting your letter in the hands of your soldier just as quickly as possible. V-Mail flies. It saves precious cargo space. It's the ideal way to keep in touch with your fighting man. V-Mail blanks can be obtained at drugstores, department stores, stationers, and at post offices. So don't take chances on delays. Use the fast, safe, and sure way every time you write. Write often and use V-Mail. Now here's James Stevenson and your World News Roundup. The German counterattack against the American First Army is not being taken lightly by Allied leaders. Neither is there any doubt in their minds that the drive will be stopped, although it will cost the Allies in great losses of men and material. Allied headquarters are maintaining a strict secrecy on the situation for security reasons, because any factual information of losses or the steps being taken to stop the German drive would be helpful to the enemy. However, there can be no doubt that we have lost considerable men and equipment. The Germans have advanced at least as far as the small Belgian town of Stavlo, about 18 miles from the German border. The attack was a complete surprise, which means that Allied units in its path were overrun. 
And as artillery is usually employed, depending on caliber, from between two to five miles behind the infantry combat lines, it is quite obvious that we must have lost considerable guns of various sizes. In addition, the average infantry division will fight on a front of approximately six to seven miles, requiring a depth of about the same distance for deploying of troops and bringing up supplies and replacements, which means that the German drive on a front of around 70 miles must have involved at least eight Allied divisions at a minimum and pushed them completely out of their positions. Such an action, depending on the speed with which it was accomplished, would naturally result in heavy losses to the defenders. The greater the speed, the greater the losses, particularly in prisoners taken. Of course, as I said before... There is an almost complete blackout of news of the fighting by Allied Supreme Headquarters. But military principles such as tactics are commonly known. And from the meager facts we have, it appears that we must be prepared for bad news when full reports are finally made. The Germans are suffering huge losses too. Field Marshal von Rundstedt is throwing great masses of tanks and men into his drive with almost reckless abandon. It is questionable as to just how long he can keep up the pace. He has committed great numbers of his reserves, both men and equipment. The odds are completely against him in the long run. And the natural query, so far as military science is concerned, is where does he go from here and what can he accomplish in a final showdown? We have more reserves and much more material. We can take more losses than he can and still come up strong. In other words, it probably would have been wiser from the military viewpoint for the Germans to continue a holding defense such as they had organized along the Western Front, hoping to tire us out and thus win a negotiated peace. But having committed themselves to this counterattack, It will be much more difficult for them to play a holding game in the future, for they won't have the men and equipment with which to do it. Their losses now will make it impossible. But it may be that the Nazi game is to make this one last supreme effort and then they'll go down fighting, giving future generations of Germans an ideal upon which to build a new super race. In the meantime, the port of Antwerp may be endangered, and through through Antwerp, much Allied supplies flow to the front. That would be a serious thing for us, if we lost Antwerp. And oftentimes, as we do on this podcast, we steer a little bit away from the World War II aspect to cover other wars and other military conflicts. And tonight we have a special occasion. We're going to leave World War II, if you will. And we're going to go to modern day, but we're going to modern day events located over in Vietnam. Joining us on the phone tonight, author Mike Ranowski, author of the new book, Harley Tracks Across the Vietnam to the Wall. Um, it's a great book. I just finished it. And Mike is joining us on the phone tonight. Mike, how are you doing? I'm doing very good. Thank you, Don. And uh, now I know throughout the novel you're in many places across the world. Where are you located tonight during this interview? I'm in Elk River, Minnesota, about 30 miles north of us. Now, is Minnesota your place of birth, or did you move there later in life? Yeah, I consider I've moved around a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, but I've always considered Minnesota and eastern North Dakota my home. It's where I, I was born in Minnesota and grew up in Minnesota, North Dakota. And so at what point in your life did you become a supervisor to uh, golf course construction? Oh, wow. That was quite a journey. Uh, I've, uh, I've had a couple of different careers in my life. I've moved over 50 times across seven countries, uh, I worked uh, in the railroad business on two different railroads for 10 years, and then I decided uh, I wanted to take care of a golf course. And after about uh, oh, a dozen years in America, I had the urge for a little adventure and went uh, over to Asia to work as a golf course superintendent and went around to a number of different countries over there, job to job, just, just trying to make a living and enjoy myself. Now, before we get to that point, which leads to the events that led to your book, 
At what age did you fall in love with motorcycles and specifically Harley Davidsons? What age? Yeah. Well, I was, uh, let's see, I'm 65 now. I was 50s when uh, I went in a job in Singapore, and I had plans to go diving off of uh, some islands east of Bali. This was still out for a while, but then I got a job offer in Hanoi. And uh, I met a guy there who could import the Harley-Davidson with no tax. I had a three-year contract, so I just wanted to enjoy a ride on my day off and make a living. Eight months after my bike got there, my contract crashed, and between jobs, uh, my joyride turned into a quest to ride around in memory of the veterans who died there, and just something I was going to do and then move on with my life and career, but it turned into uh, a lot more than I could have ever imagined. It was quite a journey. Well, that's one of the things I want to point out. Um, you went over there initially, as you just said, you, you found a job, a contract to help build a golf course. That contract fell through. You started joyriding. Then other contracts would come through and then fall through and then come through and fall through, which financially and career-wise would seem to be a huge devastation, but it's because of that inconsistency with the uh, policies over there when it comes to construction and incorporating the government and the permits that inconsistency is what allowed you to go on this journey, um, as you say in the book, co-piloted by the spirits of the men and women we lost during combat, during Vietnam, that allowed you to kind of come up with this mission, if you will, and see it through. Yeah, it was, uh, it, 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 it certainly wasn't something that could be planned. I'm, uh, missed. I was ready for, I'm always ready for an adventure. And, uh, you know, my, more times than not, my free spirit gets the best of me, and I take off and I follow this. But I, I, I felt that this was a opportunity, an obligation, if you will, that, you know, millions of people ride across America across throughout the year to honor our fallen veterans. Here I was with an opportunity to ride for them across the land they saw last. And to do it on a Harley-Davidson, you know, America's freedom machine. How cool was that, I thought? Well, not to mention but the I, fact that most Vietnam vets, or a lot of the vets who came back who got into motorcycle riding, you know, their primary choice of, of uh, transportation what were Harley-Davidsons. Uh, my uncle just and, recently passed mm -hmm. away. He was a Vietnam vet. He was with the 101st. And up until the day he died, he owned two Harleys. And he had a huge role in not only the Harley-Davidson culture down here in Fort Myers, but up in Terre Haute, Indiana, where he was originally from. And um, after he passed away, we had a, a uh, celebration of life at the VFW. And after the, um, the procedure, if you will, they actually went out and did a, a ride. And it was, it was beautiful to see. Oh, that was wonderful. What a great tribute. It's, and that's the way it's been with veterans since World War II. It, uh, uh, you look back at the motorcycling history in America, uh, it really took off after World War II. The veterans come back, and they just wanted to celebrate freedom that they sacrificed for and you know, fought so hard for. And that's where the, the, the biker culture was born in that time. Well, they, they were, there was bike groups before that, but it really took off after uh, World War II. 
Well, and I can also imagine riding on the back of a Harley or an Indian or a Triumph, whatever bike for that matter. For those guys coming back home, that was probably one of the easiest ways to feed the adrenaline that they had become accustomed to, whether it was, you know, flying planes, you know, combat, driving tanks, what have you. Coming back to the civilian life, you know, yes, the peace was nice and something they're looking forward to, but I'm sure there was a part of them that missed the adrenaline of combat or, as I said, flying, etc. And so being on the back of a bike probably was the easiest way to get some of that adrenaline back. Exactly. It's just that that uh, sense of freedom with a twist of a throttle and then the pounding of the exhaust, the beat of an engine. Yeah, yeah, that, that gets the adrenaline going. Now, going back to your book real quick, um, I found it interesting, like you said leading this interview, you were over there in Vietnam, you got brought in to do a job, and you found a guy who had the ability to import your, your motorcycle relatively cost-effectively, but in the book you pointed out that you reached out to your family and you had them put some miles on the bike. And I wasn't sure if that was a breaking-in period or if part of the Vietnamese um, import tax, um, there was a minimum amount of miles or maximum amount of miles required on the motorcycle before it was imported. What was the thought uh, behind having your brothers take your bike out before shipping it over to you? Uh, no, uh, I just wanted them to uh, get some miles on it, get it broke in, and to have a first service done on it here in America before we shipped it over to the state there was, or to Vietnam. There, there's uh, no problem with uh, getting an uh, at the time, uh, to get a new uh, a bike imported over there. Uh, Vietnam had just come into the World Trade Organization in December of 2007, which opened the door to a lot of uh, imports, and uh, the Harley-Davidson being one of them. Uh, but I, I had a Harley-Davidson here already. It was in 1998, so mm-hmm. it was 10 years old at the time. And you can't... Uh, it, it's just very expensive, it, and in some places you can't import a vehicle over 10 years old. And uh, So uh, I told them, buy, buy me another one and break it in and ship it to me. Uh, well, and thinking about it now, after I asked you the question, it made more sense to have them break it in on our nice, smooth, paved roads, opposed to you doing that breaking in period. Because as you explained throughout the book, yes, there are some very beautiful concrete, there are some with blemishes, and then there are, there are some that are just straight-up clay and mud. And as you ex- expressed multiple times, my tires aren't made for this shit. Yeah, yeah. Well, there's a lot of good roads over there, great roads. There's stretches of highway over there that are just as good as anything here in America. But I, I can attest to the fact that every good road turns bad. It may be in a mile it could be five miles even the national highway over there it has some of the worst stretches i've ever been on and uh then i just get off on little side uh trails and uh yeah it'd it get pretty bad and then for a uh a bike loaded down it was uh, you know 900 pounds and the bike had been lowered so when i've got everything loaded on it for a road trip i'm just barely three inches off the uh uh, off the roadway, and uh, the bike's got a lot of scars underneath uh, on the engine cases and in the frame, scars and creases and dents. But uh, I never found that rock that cracked the case. Well, and, and you know, and that's a testament to your riding because you know I've done some dirt bike riding growing up. I've done some four wheel riding. I've I've ridden a few street bikes. Interestingly enough, I grew up 
Um, in the summer times, I would live with my mom down in Kentucky, and she would have a lot of friends who, as my brother and I jokingly call them, bikers without bikes. I grew up around the Harley-Davidson paraphernalia. I grew up around the chain wallets, the the livelihood, but none of them could actually afford the bikes. Um, but back to what I was getting to, it's a testament to your skill, the fact that a lot of times you found yourself riding in horribly unconditioned roads, whether it's clay, mud, but you're you're using street tires. You're, you didn't decide to, you know, you, you know, put motocross tires on your Harley. You're actually out there with predominantly slick, run-of-the-mill, everyday Dunlop street tires, right? Yeah, yeah, just uh, the same way I ride it here. It's all set up the same way. Nothing special. Obviously, you had had some time in, in Asian countries before you got to Vietnam and before this particular ride, and so you had already acclimated yourself to the insanity of everyday um, Asian rush hour traffic and as we all know a majority of them over there still ride mo- uh, you know variants whether they're scooters low-end motorcycles what have you and it's just a complete cluster um, when you imported your, your Harley over there was there any part of you that was a little hesitant about getting involved in that high traffic or was your skill level you know you already had enough confidence in your skill level that it really wasn't a concern uh yeah, traffic over there is something else. Uh, well, I, I, uh, I drove in China for mm-hmm. about seven years, and I, I, I refused to be intimidated by taxi drivers who tried to intimidate me and push me around. I just, I, I demand. I, I kept my rights, and and I drove in India and Laos and Indonesia, uh, and and on a in Hong Kong and Macau on the British side of the road, no less. But all of that was just preparation for Vietnam. There's the population, 90 million people. And, uh, gosh, I'd say over half of them have a moto, the the moped at 110 cc. uh, And uh, they they don't have... uh, well, they do have laws, but very few people follow them. Yeah, it's they, it, it, it's it's this concept of space, if you will. If if there's nobody in a place over here, if there's nobody in this space, well, they feel they can be there, and it doesn't matter if that space is designated for traffic going the other direction. There's nobody in it now. I can be there, and they they just accept that amongst themselves, and they you know. Somebody will go the wrong way in a runway, and it's nothing to it. I mean, people will just weave in and out of them. But then they do run into each other. And I've seen a lot of accidents, and I had a few myself. Well, one of the, I know it wasn't meant to be entertaining the way you've written it, but as I was reading it, it kind of came off entertaining. You're talking about a, a young uh, couple, or, you know, a driver and a passenger on a moto, bogged down with all of their uh, cargo, if you will, and they were going down the same hill that you were starting to lose traction on. They kind of slid out in a Pete Rose-style fashion. But as you explain in the book, they quickly got up, recollected their things, hopped on their bike as if they were used to this sort of thing happening to oh, them all the time. I, yeah, I remember that. That was uh, up north of Hanoi and uh, in my trip around the Crown. Yeah, yeah, they, yeah, they, those two guys wiped. I mean, they just about drove me into a truck, uh, but. Uh, I, I, I escaped that, and yeah, yeah, they think nothing of it. You know, they had an accident, as long as they're not hurt, they just get back up and keep on going. 
Well, I guess in a culture where, as you also pointed out, um, these motos, these scooters are basically family transportation. And anywhere a young child will fit on the, on the running boards or on the steering wheel or on the back of the bench seat, anywhere they will fit, they fit and they will ride. And so I would speculate that a lot of these guys and girls have been dealing with um, minor moto accidents a majority of their life. And so it, it probably had become accustomed to them at some point. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's a family vehicle. It's a workhorse. Uh, it's uh, it's a mode of transportation. They went from the bicycles to the moto. They, and, uh, and again, you know, the, the cities are just jam-packed, and the police, uh, uh, you know, well, they don't patrol. They'll just put up kind of a, a stage or place alongside the street, and if they want somebody to pull over, they just point at them and, you know, demand that they pull over. Sometimes they pull over. Some people don't pull over. They just run away from the police and get lost in traffic, and they're they're gone, never to be seen again. And the rider, the parent, uh, you, know, you have to wear a helmet, but small children, they don't have to wear helmets. That's that's crazy. Now, in the book, yeah. you, you pointed out um, there's one particular um, village that had a Jeep up on some blocks behind it, and you also talked about some remnants of old... Um, the pillars in the water from old bridges during the combat area during combat time back in Vietnam. But during your travels, did you come across any other uh, combat remnants, whether it was bunkers, um, just anything else that kind of got that feeling of, Oh, wow, I'm, I'm here where our boys were. I'm here where the combat happened. Uh, you know, the country is not littered with remnants of the war. It's, uh, I, I'm now. I'm not a combat veteran. I'm a Vietnam era, but mm-hmm. I served in Europe at that time. And uh, riding around Vietnam, the uh, the only place you're going to find remnants, relics from the war, would be in museums. Sure. And uh, they've got a lot of museums drawn. I uh, I went to a couple of the formal museums, but I didn't go to a lot of them. They're just you know uh, too touristy. Yeah. Yeah. And. Uh, and when you start reading the uh, their stories about the war, I uh, start uh, it just kind of turns into propaganda. They're, they're telling their story the way they want to tell it, and that's fine. It's it's their story; they can tell it the way they want. And uh, uh, but out in the country, the only remnants relics I saw of the war were the blown up bridges along the. Uh, Coachman Trail, as it's designated today, there would be uh, abutments for the bridge, and the deck is blown off, or there's pillars crumbling in the middle of the river, but the decks have been blown off, you know, they're scattered all throughout the jungle and the river. Uh, those are the, the only remnants left, and veterans that I've talked to uh, there while I was in Vietnam, and since I've been back, uh, uh, veterans who have gone back to Vietnam to find the places that they were during the war, uh, most of them can't find them. They don't recognize them anymore. The buildings have been, you know, long gone, and the, something else standing there, or else the jungles reclaimed it. Well, I can imagine. I mean, like you start off the interview, you've moved moved throughout the world many a times. Um, on a smaller scale, I have moved around the country. I've lived in Ohio, Kentucky, California, and Florida. 
and I left Ohio in the town I grew up in, Grove City, back in 2001. And just in the short 15, you know, 14 years, whenever I go back to visit, things had changed so much that, I mean, here's a town that I grew up in that I learned how to drive in. And looking back on it now, I'm lucky if I can remember three street names. So I can imagine it's impossible to find something that you were in, you know, back in the 60s and 70s under combat stress. And not only that, but in a jungle that probably overgrew three weeks later. So it, by all means, it's completely understandable that a lot of these um, locations are, are hard to, to rediscover. Yeah, I was in uh, up at Quezon, uh which is uh, right in the, near the DMZ uh, at the time. And I did go out into the jungle there with the rode the bike out into the jungle on this little clay path and... Uh, I could recognize, you know, where there were craters, bomb craters, uh, but uh, again, the you know weather and jungle vegetation, you know, it uh, just kind of blends into the uh, topography nowadays. Uh, but uh, that uh, it was alarming for me to learn when I got there about the unexploded ordnance. Yep. Uh, there's there's a third of our bombs they say didn't explode when they dropped them, but now uh, farmers are finding them, hitting them, and they're blowing up. Children are finding them. The uh, the 40-millimeter bomblet, I think it is, there's a lot of them, and you know, it looks like a ball. So children find it, throw it, and it finally goes off. The, then thousands of people have been killed from the unexploded ordinance. There is uh, a, a humanitarian organization over there called MAG, mm-hmm. Mines Advisory Group. They remove, uh, their, you know, bombs and, and mines, and and uh, they've been there for oh God, I don't know, many years now, and they've removed millions of bombs. But at the rate they're going, it would take over a hundred years Jesus. to clear Vietnam of all the unexploded ordnance. Well, and to make that relatable for our our listeners who are, you know, in the World War Two, we. During the um, documentary Return to Tarawa, they're talking about uh, Basho and how to this day, very similar. There's so much unexploded ordnance over there and, um, you know, equipment to that to this day, anytime they do construction, they find ordnance, they find remains of, you know, of fallen Marines and weaponry. But over there, I mean, I can imagine, especially in Vietnam with the foliage and the jungle, and the amount of population in such a widespread area, like you said, it would take hundreds of years. And it makes you think they would almost have to kind of, for those kids who do go to a formal schooling over there, because I know a lot of them basically once they get to an age where they can be some benefit to the family, particularly if they're on a farm, that they don't go to school, that they're there to help out the family. But I would think for those who do get an official education, they probably have some sort of um, program at school to kind of, warn them or even educate them on what some of these things might look like so they can stay away from them. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know how much uh, I'm, well, I, I would expect something said in the schools, but most of it is just word of mouth. And then, then there's just uh, not, uh, you know, ignorance to it, not, you know, not knowing or, or accidentally hitting it. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, to, to back up one thing, when you asked me about the remnants of the war that, you know, uh, I didn't see other than the, the bridge pillars or the museums, but there, there, 
there is one related to that uh, that also goes along with these uh, unexploded ordnance. The Agent Orange issue in mm-hmm. Vietnam, it, it is it it rages over there. The war still rages with uh, the unexploded ordnance and the Agent Orange uh, affected families, people dying from it. You know, and that's that's what our veterans brought home, and they're suffering with it here also. Now, our d- veterans and and their families. Well, not only those who were alive during that time over there, but doesn't it affect kind of like the DNA composition of the family members so that it's passed down generation in the form of birth defects? It, it, uh, they still don't know all the effects of it, but it, uh, it gets into uh, the DNA and it attacks on its own time scale. They know it's at least, it stays in the genes at least three generations. But, again, it attacks on its own time scale. And for those of you listening who may have heard Agent Orange but not familiar exactly with what it was, basically, um, obviously, Vietnam, heavy jungle area, a lot of foliage. Uh, we're doing a lot of, you know, we got a lot of helicopters flying over, a lot of planes flying over, and we're trying to find the enemy. And so we came up with the idea, well, let's essentially wipe out the weeds. Let's just think of it the equivalent of an industrial strength uh raid or uh you know weed killer uh, but obviously it's definitely a hell of a lot stronger than that but the whole idea was to spray it on the jungle so it would kill out the foliage and basically turn it into more like a desert so that when we fly over we can see these encampments and we can see their equipment and the enemy but yeah, obviously they did, they when didn't you didn't ha- know what they were doing yeah exactly and obviously when not only were the enemy out there but you have villages everywhere and populations mm-hmm. everywhere and so not only did we, you know, potentially hit the enemy and the weeds with this, but it did fall into the, the uh, fell onto the civilians. It fell into the water. It got into their food source. It got into their crops, and then they start unknowingly consuming the spoiled crops with it. And it's just been a nightmare ever since. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, it, uh, dioxin is one of the most deadly chemicals known to man. And uh, yeah, they didn't know what they were doing when they were applying it and spraying it. But uh, the jungle is uh, returning. The vegetation is returning. There was one area in the tri-border uh, region uh, with Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. That it, it was I don't know how many square miles, <laughs> but it was uh, it was pretty bare around there. Um, just a lot of hills with, I mean, knee-high vegetation occasionally here and there, tree and farmers trying to eke out uh, uh, some crops. Uh, but you get, you know, 8, 10 miles from there, and you're right back into the jungle. But there were some places, I mean, you, you look out and you see the jungle and the forest, but when you look through the forest and see the trees, you see a lot of the trees are all growing in perfect grids all from reforestation. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, basically after just about any war, you know, whoever it's with, we always, you know, initiate some sort of rebuilding. So it would make sense that there's going to be some reforestation, replanting of the plants. As you're explaining that, I was sitting here thinking to, you know, about your Harley, about the riding. Here you are, you imported an American bike over to a country where a majority of people ride small CC motor scooters. There were a steady growing population of true bike riders over there. 
but you found a group of a couple of group of riders in one particular garage who were more than helpful when it came time to help you fix some um, some issues, help you replace some tires. There was an issue with one of your saddlebags; the leather was starting to, uh, let's say, hang incorrectly due to the heat off your exhaust. Were you surprised uh-huh. about the charitable? Um, givings of the people throughout the country when it came to helping you maintain your equipment and getting back on the road? Uh, yeah, people uh, in general, uh, people are good, kind-natured. We want to help people. You know, uh, and in the biking community, that's uh, a very uh, admirable trait in the biking community because, you know, you're going out there on your own. Well, somebody wants to make sure you're going to come back. Yeah, there was... Uh, Harley rider, well, the riders, they got Harleys, and there's, there were a lot of bikes there when I got there. The hog of Hanoi, and there was a hog of Saigon, also the Harley owners groups. And, uh, but when I, was really kind of funny, when I first uh, got the bike there, and I'm out riding by myself every weekend, uh, and uh, then I met some other riders, uh, uh, Vietnamese guys, a Canadian, Australian, a Bulgarian, you know, there's a lot of expats there, and and uh, we're on uh, this Sunday afternoon ride and getting to know each other. And they asked me, uh, who am I riding with? And I said, nobody. And they looked at me and they said, nobody rides alone around here. And uh, they warned me. They warned me about the dangers of riding alone. You know, I could be by an accident. I could be ignored if, if I had an accident in a remote area. Uh, it could be a day or longer before I received medical treatment if I was found. And, and then one of them told me about a new highway that nobody used. And I thought that was pretty strange. They talked about robberies and scams to fix flat tires and too few gas stations. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, I, I can fix my own tires. And the next Sunday, I rode out alone and found that new highway, a fantastic stretch of trail known as the Ho Chi Minh Road. There's two main highways that run any distance north and south in Vietnam, and that's the highway number one, uh, the national highway along the coastline that goes through all the cities, and there's, you know, it just, it, 90% of the traffic beats that highway up. And the other one is the Ho Chi Minh Road, which follows uh, the old trail that was used during the war and even before the, their American War, as they call it. It was used in feudal times before the French even got there. So, so they've got this and this highway. There are very few people on it used it. I mean, it it was it was that highway belonged to me and those I rode for. Uh, and it, it is by far the most fantastic trail I've ever rode in my life. The, the history there and the solitude. Oh man, I I loved riding there. I, I just. I'd stop often and just sit and listen and look at the jungle and imagine, you know, what what took place here. And I'm I'm getting to, you know, being here on a Harley Davidson riding for those carrying the spirits of the fallen with me while I'm riding up and down there with a playful vengeance, having fun, celebrating freedom for them. Well, and playful vengeance to a T. I mean, you pointed out in your book, um, you not only enjoyed the ride, you loved the challenge of the under-conditioned roads, the weather. I mean, once again, you're in the jungle. It rains, and then oh. it stops, and then it rains, and then it stops. 
And, you know, yeah. and you're out in the middle of nowhere. It's not like, you know, here in the States where, okay, I'll just drive for the next 20 miles and pull over at the next rest stop and, you know, chill out underneath a, a canopy for a little bit and wait till the rain passes. I mean, you're basically riding till the next village. I, I wanted to, uh, I, I, did, I didn't know combat, but I could only imagine. And I wanted to experience everything about that country that I could, that those guys were enduring, you know, battles and monsoons or the uh, blistering heat of tropical sunshine or uh, up way up north, you know, near freezing temperatures and sleep. I wanted to experience it all on a Harley Davidson celebrating. You know, I, it was entertaining to me. I, I, I didn't care. I bring it on, bring it on. I, I rode through the monsoons day and night to to experience that and challenge it. And you know, those guys I rode for would have appreciated what I could do or was doing. And had they been there, had they known the country in, under my circumstances. They'd have loved it, but you know, sadly they didn't. But I was there. I had this opportunity, and I wanted to celebrate freedom for them. So I, I just people have told me for many years how they'd live vicariously through my adventures. Well, that's fine. Whatever they got out of it. Well, here I was in a kind of a a flip situation. I wanted to live vicariously for them on this land. And I just threw all my inhibitions to the side, and I just grabbed a handful of throttle and let it rip. <laughs> exactly. And and two more things I want to I want to talk about before I let you go is one, you said you know you wrote these monsoons day and night, and that sounds like no big deal. You know, you're dealing with a little bit of mud, little little bit of cold, a little bit of rain. But as you pointed out early on in your book, there's one particular night where you had been riding all night in the rain. You got to a small town. The main hotel that had been advertised in one of these travel brochures was full, but a local was nice enough to take you to somewhere he knew had a vacancy. But you're riding in the dark. He he knows the area, so he's kind of hauling ass. You're trying to keep up with him. And you did so, but it wasn't until the morning that you realized how precarious of a path he had taken you up. And if you would have gone three feet to the right into the berm, you would have went over a cliff face. And so a lot of times when you're riding out in the night, there's no light pollution. There's no road lamps. It's just you, your headlight, and the amount of fog and rain in front of you. There's probably more than just that one occasion where if you had ridden through there during the daytime, you would have been surprised at how close of injury or death you could have come to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that was uh, my first ride up to Sapa. At night in the dense fog and in the morning, yeah, I had to, uh, I had to get, hire a couple of guys and tie a rope to the back of the bike, and then those guys would uh, kind of feed out the rope and, and let me get down the path because I, I didn't, I didn't dare ride down that path because it was algae and on the little uh, concrete that was in there. No, that was bad. And uh, riding down the mountains in the monsoon down the north of Saigon at night. Uh, yeah, that was, uh, that was pretty uh, hairy, but, uh, you know, was, uh, at times I was, you know, keeping an eye on the dish, looking in the ditch. You know, where am I going to make a break if, if a 
as I'm, you know, could be in the wrong lane. I didn't know where where I was on the road, but if somebody was coming around the curve, uh, I'd have to make a, a run into the ditch. So, uh, but I made it. <laughs> what was the total amount of miles you put on the Fat Boy while over in Vietnam? Thirty-one thousand miles in Vietnam. It's a lot of tires. It's a lot of uh, a lot of road time. A lot of time yeah. staring through the uh, the windshield. What was your favorite Seven, piece of road to ride over there? Uh, the the Ho Chi Minh Road. The Ho Chi Minh Road is like one of the best trails I've ever rode in my life. Uh, there's some, also way up on, near the China border. There's some uh, nice trails up there because they they don't get the the, the traffic up there. Hardly anybody up there. <laughs> uh, but I went seven times across Vietnam. I've been from tip to tip, as far as you can go north. And I've been farther south than is now possible. And the second time I went down to Nam Con on the southern tip, uh, I found that they'd uh, they dug out about 300 feet of the path to make uh, a little boat harbor. So I've been farther south than is possible with the motorcycle. At what point did you feel like you accomplished your mission? Well, um, I thought this journey was over a few times, you know, and I was going to be going back to my work. But it was uh, in about uh, right after the crown, my trip to the crown. Then I had I had to go back out on the trail because I, 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 I'd missed, I felt I'd missed something. And while I was riding around on what I call the swan song ride chapters, I felt then that uh, I was my my journey was going to be complete with this. I thought this is going to be it, and it it had been such a up to that point it had been such a wild adventure, and I felt so blessed that I had the opportunity to do it, and. As I felt an obligation to write, I felt an obligation that I need to share this story. I need to write a book about it. And to do that, I would have to leave my career before I was ready to retire. So it was uh, a pretty big risk. And I'm, I'm not a wealthy guy, uh, but uh, this was something that had to be done. So I'm out there and I start, I, I hadn't been keeping a journal because uh, I didn't plan on writing a book. But I had thousands and thousands of photos. And my memory was still sharp, and I started writing. And I just wrote and wrote and wrote and uh, got everything down. I had to finish a draft before I would leave Vietnam because there just needed to be in that atmosphere, and everything was still, you know, in my mind. It was sharp. I could recall everything. and But... It wasn't over yet. Three months before I left Vietnam, had I not met a veteran at the Texas barbecue in the Chang, my quest would have been incomplete and I wouldn't have known about it. He's a biker from uh, Arizona and I live up here in Minnesota. Well, to make a long story short, with him, my ride goes full circle. We meet up in Des Moines, Iowa in May of 2013. We meet up with a veterans group and make uh, a ride to the wall 
from Memorial Day. That brought my quest full circle. I've, oh gosh, what a, that was, uh, you remember, that was such an emotional uh, scene in, uh, at the wall in Washington, D.C. after I've been riding with their spirits across Vietnam and then to like face them all in D.C. Wow. Well, I can tell you're a passionate man because not only did you literally put yourself and your bike in some precarious situations, um, then you decided it was your duty to finish this quest. But then, like you said, you, you felt now it was your time to spread the word and to write this book. And you put so much effort, time, and finances into it that I see that it is not only you know a beautiful hardback, but it's also self-published, correct? I see it's Trax Press is the publisher. Yes, I, I did, and I did it for those I rode for. I've, I've always worked for other people uh, and had good jobs, uh, but those guys didn't get to have, you know, they lost their life. They didn't get, they lost the life they had, and they lost the life they could have had. And many of them would have wanted to been an entrepreneur. That's kind of like an American dream to, uh, to go out and do something like that. So I wanted to do this. It had to, I wanted it to be from me, my story, I'm going to do it all for them, but I did it uh, with professional guidance. I went through a lot of expense to to learn things not to do and and how to get things done right. The literary world is ruthless. Yeah. But uh, Well, especially nowadays the, with the advent yeah, of the Internet. Everything's changing. Yeah. And with the self-publish, anybody can self-publish anything. But uh, as as I had so many coincidences, I call them that that allowed my journey to to fulfill itself. I had some very strange, unique coincidences through my writing and publishing process. I ended up with uh, the perfect editor, and she was actually my second choice. But she turned out to be the best choice. Even even the guy who I wanted for my first trips to be my editor, uh, I talked with him later on and told him how everything was going and what I was doing and what she was doing. And he says, "Man, he says I couldn't have done everything she's doing for you." Well, I got I got to say the writing in this book is spectacular. Um, I, I was kind of expecting you to tell me to that you have written one or two books prior to this one because the writing is done so well that uh, not only should you take pride in your ride and what you accomplished over in Vietnam, but you should take great pride in your writing skills and the uh, publishing of this book. I am very proud of it. I am extreme. I put over 6,000 hours into that book, and for every hour, I was right back into my journey again. I am, I am so humbled at the comments I've gotten from a vast, array of demographic Vietnam veterans humble me to tears with uh, their comments. Uh, riders, non-riders, uh, people connect with the story. It, it's not it's not about the war, because I'm not a combat veteran. Uh, I'm just a guy who likes to ride and saw opportunities that had to be taken, and I felt an obligation to honor our fallen veterans. But it, it turned in, it, it's something that consumed me. It consumed my life, it consumed my career, and it still consumes me. And a lot of people 
want to read this book. They just don't know it yet. <laughs> and the book is called Harley Tracks Across the Vietnam to the Wall. We are talking with Mike Ranowski. If you're looking for any more information on this book, go to harleytracks.com. Mike, do you have a Facebook page? Uh, I do have a Harley Tracks Facebook page and uh, my website. And uh, I have to, in all honesty, uh, I'm very poor at uh, uh, social media stuff. I've, uh, I'm, I wrote a good story, but marketing, that's just... Uh, I. That's hard. Yep, it's it's uh, definitely its own little own little monster. Yeah, but I do I uh, try to keep up with uh, occasionally you know, every month or two months. Uh, keep the uh, Facebook uh, fresh or the, the website fresh and follow up on the Facebook. Uh, but I certainly direct anybody to uh, to harleytracks.com. There's a lot on there. Now, one more question before you go. I already know the answer because I can tell by the type of guy you are. But I'm assuming, uh, where's the fat boy at? And is it in the same condition it was when you brought it home? Oh, no. Uh, I'm actually, uh, I'm just in the stage of putting it back together. I stripped it down and sandblasted the frame and powder-coated the frame. I've got uh, uh, sort of, I've got 115,000 miles on it now. And I've got it ready for the second 100,000 miles. The engine is, I put in some uh, new uh, cam assemblies, but otherwise the engine is tight. It's, it's in superb, it's a blessed bike. Uh, but I've had, uh, I'm going to be taking it to some motorcycle shows this winter. It's had some, it still has the anniversary colors, uh, but I've had some artwork done on it. And the artwork, uh, it, tells the story of my ride and I will continue to ride this in honor and memory uh, of those who never came back from Vietnam and when I'm done riding this bike it's going to be donated to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington DC as the title to the uh, National Park Service so it, I, I ride it for them Thank you so much for your time, Mike. Um, well, actually, I keep saying one more question, but then I keep having another question pop in my mind. I know, where's your next ride going to be? You got anything planned for the future here locally? You waiting for the summertime? Yeah. Well, each year since I've been back from Vietnam, uh, this I, I ride uh, on the National Veterans Awareness Ride. Uh, there's a, a group of people across the northern tier of America each May, we meet out in Auburn, California, and we start out with about oh, 35, 40 new cars. We, we visit veterans in homes and hospitals uh, along our way each day for 10 days. Uh, uh, sometimes we make, we make multiple stops during the day, and we stop at schools to visit school children and share our mission with them. And we stop at cemeteries and memorials to hold ceremonies for those who are no longer with us. And this May, I will be making my seventh ride with them across the country. And I have been honored uh, to be selected to place a wreath at the Tomb of the Unknowns when we get to Arlington National Cemetery uh, in D.C. That's beautiful. Um, now, is. in your book, you point out your father was a World War II vet. 
And he fought in the yeah. Pacific, correct? Yes. He was a naval man? He was, uh, yeah, he was a uh, seaman. Yeah, he was on a destroyer. And uh, uh, I, I, I say in jest, I say in jest with, you know, in good humor that me and um, my eight brothers and sisters and my mom, we heard so many war stories from World War II that we all deserved a battle ribbon. Yeah, and I wish... Dad, Dad, Dad liked to share his stories. He saw a lot of action on the high seas. Well, I only wish I had the opportunity to interview him. Mike Ronowski, oh. Harley tracks across Vietnam to the wall. Thank you so much for your time, and Merry Christmas, sir. Well, thank you, Don. It's been nice talking with you, and uh, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year to you, and, and a reminder to all your audience uh, to uh, remember our veterans. Thank a veteran. Well, from... The best way I can find to honor them is to responsibly uh, a life they didn't get to. Well, for a majority of my listeners, every day is Veterans Day. We think about our vets every day. So uh, we'll uh, keep the Vietnam vets in our hearts as well. Thank you, Mike, and you have a good night. Thank you, Don. Bye-bye. Good night. And I want to say Merry Christmas to all of you as well. Um, just in case I don't get an episode out next week, um, there's a good chance that I won't. Uh, we're going to be dead into Christmas, and the New Year's going to be rolling around the corner. But I want to thank everybody for their support over this year. Um, this year, to be honest, has been kind of trial and tribulations. I'm trying to figure out where to take the show, the kind of format. Do we strictly stick to World War II? Do we venture off into other wars? And the original goal for this podcast when I started it was to be strictly World War II. But what I discovered is people would come up to me and ask me, Hey, um, I know some Korean War vets. Do you want to interview them? Would you have any interest in interviewing Vietnam vets? My first initial response is to say, well, no, I want to strictly keep it World War II. But then I kind of got the feeling by saying that, I was basically saying their war wasn't as important as that of World War II. And I didn't like the feeling that it gave me. And so, as the opportunity presents itself, um, we will interview Korean War vets and Vietnam War vets and any other war vets, for that matter. However, World War II is my strong point. As we all know, um... Time is catching up with the World War II vets. They're getting harder and harder to find. With that being said, if you know anybody who's willing to sit down and do a phone interview, send me an email at mailcall at whatsthescuttlebutt.com or reach out to me on our Facebook page or my Instagram page. The easiest way to find all my social media pages is through d-410.com. You can go through whatsthescuttlebutt.com or go on Facebook. But d-410.com has all the links to all my pages, all my podcasts, all my email addresses. That's the easiest way to get a hold of me. But thanks everybody so much for such a great year. I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of you out at events. But yeah, thanks so much. And if you didn't know, um, the show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, um, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Google Music. So now we are everywhere. 2019 is coming up and we're looking at some big things. Uh, we hope to expand the show, maybe bring in some more personalities. We'll see how it all falls together. But thank you so much, everybody, for hanging out with us through the year of 2018. And I'm looking forward to 2019. And Merry Christmas and Happy New Year. <laughs>